This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Before he was a college professor, Hugo Benavides was a kid growing up in New York City and in Ecuador. And as a kid, he watched a fair amount of TV. That included the Latin American primetime soap operas called telenovelas. I grew up my whole life, my family watching soap operas, and me having a very mixed reaction in the sense of, you know, it's sort of, what is it, guilty pleasure, of really, really liking them inside, but saying that I couldn't because I was a man, and also because then I sort of became an academic and we don't watch those things, right? But then I realized that I just had this, like, you know, 20, 25 years experience of soap operas. I was just there waiting to be mine. Today, Benavides is an assistant professor of anthropology at Fordham University. In the past, he's written on such weighty topics as what it means to be Latino in New York and in Latin America, power relations, and transnational migration. But his most recent research project mines the gold of those 25 years watching TV and going to the movies in Spanish. In a book due out later this year, Benavides talks about the deeper meanings of telenovelas and a genre of mostly Mexican movies called narcodramas. Benavides joined me recently in the studio for a conversation that might make you want to stop your TV remote next time on Telemundo. Hugo Benavides, welcome. Thank you. Now, you are interested in two distinct kinds of entertainment that are very big in what we'll call the Latin world. That's telenovelas and narcodramas. Now, tell me about what both of those are. Um, I guess we might be more familiar with telenovelas, which they're really sort of soap operas, um, except that they're very distinct from American soap operas. They're very different. They last a much shorter amount of time. And they're, I think, much more melodramatic, you know, much more dramatic. Narcodramas are, I think, less known in the American world. And they're mainly sort of Mexican shoot-up shoot up films, but... They're really, I also think that they have like an element of sort of Asian karate films at the same time. And they're also border stories. So they're particularly Mexican as opposed to Latin American, but they get distributed throughout Latin America and also to the Latino population in the U.S. Now, you mentioned melodrama, and that's a really important part for you of what defines these things. Tell me what you mean by melodrama. Um, I think like the best examples are, and most telenovelas always have sort of this central love affair between two characters. And I think sort of these love affairs or love triangles are very good examples, right? Because everybody knows that it's hard to be in a relationship or to have a love affair end. But nobody really sort of wants to go out all the way into sort of the dramatic mode and sort of kill themselves, kill the other person. But they have these emotions. So the nice things about the novelas is I think that they're able to express what we really feel but normally cannot say and worse do. So whereas when you break up with somebody in real life, you might say, God, I'd really like to kill that person. In the melodrama, you would actually kill the person. Or at least attempt, right? And that's where telenovelas become really interesting, right? Because you, then you have that evil person that will actually try to poison somebody um, one of the, the novelas that I was writing about, right, uh, Adrián está de visita, which is this Colombian sort of very modern soap opera. You have this aunt who is really in love with her sister's, sorry, with her sister's husband. And instead of being able to acknowledge that and bring that out, what she actually does is actually kills her sister's husband's lover, <laughs> And right, and runs her over, and in the process of running her over, goes blind. So all of a sudden, this is a, you know, it's not even a triangle anymore. It's a quadruple. And she ends up doing what we want to do, but she ends up blind and paying a price for it, right? 
So I, I think in that sense, what melodrama also does is that it brings an excess of emotions. And that's what's interesting because then it brings what I think is more richness and depth to the emotions that we're feeling. It's not only anger, but what anger produces in terms of guilt or in terms of punishment as well. So I'm <laughs> I'm thinking actually when you're describing this that it might be really familiar to people because of Dynasty. Uh, actually, Dynasty and Dallas, I think, are the closest approximation to telenovelas or Latin American soap operas. And I think they're a very interesting sort of media phenomena in the U.S. when they came out. And I also find it very interesting, and I've been thinking a little bit about this, that they were sort of most, uh, they were actually both, right, actually in the context of Texas. And that there's something about Texas of two things, I think. One, being a border state and having this sort of very, I, I think, repressed genealogy of sort of trying to deny its Mexican origins. But at the second time, I also feel like it's one of the states that prides itself on being the most honest, the most front and upward about what they're feeling. And yet it's producing these, you know, media programs, which actually sort of the opposite. I think it's tempting for us to talk about to talk about uh, telenovelas rather as sort of being kitsch, but they're actually a much bigger deal than just kitsch in Latin America and increasingly in the United States. They've only been around since the 60s, but they have had an impact that has been well beyond just the world of entertainment. So that's 400 things in one question. Um, and I definitely agree with your analysis. It's, it's beyond kitsch. And there's several elements to that. The repression of desire is central in both telenovelas and narcodramas. But in telenovelas, I think the repression of sexual desire is very, very profound. And I think like a good example is the Brazilian soap opera Chica. Chica is a Brazilian soap opera, and it's based on actually a historical figure, Chica da Silva, who in the 1700s was a slave but managed to become the concubine or the partner of the sort of provincial governor of Minas Gerais, which was sort of the diamond mines of Brazil. So she gained her freedom. She gained an enormous amount of power, but she was never able to marry as an ex-slave. And the provincial governor leaves, and she stays as the most powerful human uh, individual, right, even though she's a woman, which is an ex-slave, which is really, really sort of just you know, gigantic. So they had a um, soap opera in this, and it was really, really popular. And it actually was the soap opera that made me want to write about telenovelas, right? Because the first time I saw it, I was very offended that they were doing a soap opera in the slave plantation. And, you know, it's almost like that was just a new extreme, how to use a slave plantation, something just that was just sort of historically oppressive um, to a degree of entertainment, but a very good friend of mine, uh, another anthropologist, you know, just sort of like slapped me and said, just sit down and see it, you know. And I did. And I realized that th the characters, the actors were doing a very tasteful job, that they were representing the period, but they were also sort of commenting on the current sort of racial politics of Brazil. But one of the things that I think goes both ways is that it's a slave plantation, so everybody's nearly naked. So you have these beautiful bodies, both black and white, running around half naked, and they need to be censored. So what they did in the U.S. is they would sort of like, um, I guess this is very common, sort of like just fudge it, right? But I don't know if they did it on purpose or not, but so when they walked or when they ran, the fudge part didn't follow them completely. 
so you could actually see them naked on screen and this like fuzzy part following them around, right? But I think that's what makes the novela so interesting that it is about um, this repressed desire, and as such, it's always continuously there, and it's always sort of like calling us or, or, or making us revisit places that we don't actually feel very comfortable in. So. Well, that's really an interesting point because I think it's my impression that a lot of the criticism of telenovelas from sort of cultural elite types is that they reinforce a lot of stereotypes. But you say that that's really not true. It's actually much more subversive than that. I think what is subversive about it is that there is something very melodramatic about Latin American culture, right? That, for example, funerals, I think, are a very good example of this, right? They're sort of really like not necessarily parties, but people party at them. People have a good time, and they drink, and they stay up the whole night. And at the same time, you know, people, like, faint, and it's this. And I think that's what it's really expressing, that there is a very over-the-top, excessive element of Latin American culture that's being expressed in telenovelas, and it's being used to sort of rework the idea of what does it mean to be Latin American and what it what Latin America really is. And normally I think that idea is censored in sort of the official venues. But because soap operas are supposed to be so low class, nobody really pays attention to them. So you get a lot of sort of non-typical or transgressive plots and characters because nobody's really paying attention to them. So what's an example of the kind of plot you'd see? Um, well, I think I already mentioned these two. Uh, like, Shika is great because, as I said, I would have this originally very sort of offended reaction, right? So I think that's a very good example. But even the one I mentioned before, Adrián está de visita, it's brilliant because the plot about um, that telenovela is how this very middle-class Colombian family, the white daughter, you know, very white, very blonde, falls in love with a black man. And the the first, you know, uh, week of the soap opera opens with her dumping her rich white fi- fiancé and ha- bringing this black man to the house. And everybody is sort of, like, shocked. But what's even better is when he sort of comes to the house to dinner and says, I'm not really in love with you. I'm here because I'm actually your half-brother. And... You can almost hear the music, and it's just from there on it just begins, right? So, and and I think that's you know there's a lot of you know uh, illegitimate children and you know um, affairs out of marriage that nobody really talks about because they're just sort of part of Latin American culture. And then you get at the novela that actually addresses this in its own way. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV ninety point seven and WFUV dot org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking today with Hugo Benavides about telenovelas and narcodramas. In telenovelas, you'll often find, among other things, that the good characters are lighter-skinned and the bad ones are darker-skinned. And you'll also find that black or indigenous characters often behave in ways that might seem very stereotypical. In his work on telenovelas, Benavides argues that those stereotypes are masking a deeper tackling of issues that elite media in Latin America just won't touch with plots that focus on transgression of social roles and expectations. I asked him about those stereotypes in telenovelas and how he's chosen to deal with them. I think one of the things that I've done is sort of I've focused more on those transgressive characters. 
So that I don't think I could actually say that most of the soap operas are transgressive, but rather that I think the most popular ones are, right? That you'll have 100 soap operas that are the same, but there'll be 20 that'll really sort of hit a nerve. And people don't know why it is. And at the same time, they're not politically correct. They're not being done to, and I think that's what people like about them, because I don't think any of us like to be spoken to or down to. So what the soap operas are doing, they're really trying to make good business. So if they see that something sells, they're going to use it. And I think what sells is that provocation, those transgressive elements. So I don't think they outnumber the stereotypical ones, but I think they do outnumber them in popularity. What are sort of the typical elements of a telenovela plot? <sighs> there's, there's tons of stuff. I mean, I think there's two elements that are central. One of them are the stock characters. So you'll have a good person who's good, 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 good. You'll have a bad person who's like all evil and you can just really hate, you know, like really, really love to hate, you know, find pleasure in hating. And do they have certain sort of characteristics in common from show to show? Yeah. I mean, you can even see it like in clothes they wear and the darker colors are supposed to lighter ones. But the big element, I think, to signal those things are music. Right. You just will hear a music and you'll know, you know, if you're supposed to feel good or bad about that character. And you'll also have like the the lovers, right, which normally is involved with a good or bad person, which tend to be female. Then you also have a Joker character, one person who's just kind of off and awkward. And that's been interesting to me because I've always felt in at least several of the soap operas I looked at that that character was also queer. And sometimes gay, sometimes not, but definitely queer, and that there was something off about that character. So, But ultimately, I think all those scenarios about illegitimate children or kidnapping or you know doomed love affairs, I think they really have to do about what in Spanish is conocer or reconocer, right? which is to know, to re-know. The telenovelas are always about a returning finding out who the real family was, about finding which was the true love affair, right? And that there's always something about knowing yourself better at the end of the soap opera than you did at the beginning. So a revelation. It's a better word. It's a better way of saying it, yeah. Absolutely. That's what it is. Uh, the two the novelas which I've, I guess I keep talking about, uh, Adrián está de visita, what we learn at the end of the soap opera is that this black man was not really the father's legitimate son. Not, not, it wasn't his son at all. But that he actually had met the father's legitimate son who died in prison and in poverty and asked him as a favor to go back and gain vengeance on the family. So he does sort of... Dis he doesn't destroy the family. He breaks up the family as each of them finds that they're living this sort of middle-class pretension. Right. So that's the revelation. So the family comes to know who they really are, too. Right. And so does he. Right. So it's, 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 it's a double revelation. It's fascinating how that works. So they're actually things end up very badly for everyone then. Uh, yes. But they all like one one of the kids, the guy comes out. The mother ends up divorcing, but with uh, a newer, more caring husband. The father dies of a heart attack, but he's repentant of what he has done. So, yeah, they're sort of troubling outcomes, but they're more in line with whom they are. They're redeemed. Yes. Yes, revelation and redemption. Absolutely. That's what the novelas are about. Wow. Wow. 
So there you go. So they end. The story ends, unlike American soap operas, and people come to a resolution. And I think that's what the key. It's not so much. And I think maybe that's what's changed a little bit. And that's maybe through the 80s. I think there were several Brazilian soap operas that might have helped to do this. But that it wasn't any longer about just happy endings, but it was about uh, resolution, which sort of made it seem like a happy resolution, right? Like there was a, a finality to it, which we don't have in life. <laughs> so it's they're they're sort of they're like movies. Yes, yes, they end, absolutely. <laughs> they end and they have catharsis yeah. and revelation and all that stuff that movies have, but TV shows often don't ever have because they drag on forever mm-hmm. and ever and mm-hmm. ever. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, we will hear about the nightmare that is parking in New York City. Cityscape with George Bodarchy this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. We've been talking on Fordham Conversations this morning about telenovelas and narcodramas. We haven't heard much yet, though, about narcodramas. They're not as well-known as telenovelas, and they're not as glossy either. Let's hear more from Hugo Benavides. As I was saying before, narcodramas are movies, and they tend to be be very violent, thug, border, drug films. And what they have in common is that they always have a anti-hero who's somebody who's managed to get involved with some sort of cartel or, or drug culture because of situations, not necessarily because they're evil or malice. So everybody else, everybody in the movie, including them, are really bad. So it's one of these movies where there are really no totally good characters. So even the even the hero is bad? Well, that's why he's sort of like an anti-hero, because he's the one that's actually good, right? The police cops are bad. The border police are bad. The people in the cartel are bad. So the anti-hero is trying to make the best of a really bad situation, and that ultimately makes him good. I mean, in that sense, I guess I've always sort of used Macbeth like this. Like he gets redeemed at the end because he accepts how bad he's been, and that's sort of the idea. So is it a good guy who's forced into a bad situation and handles himself in a basically honorable way, or is he just somebody who's not really that great of a guy to begin with? I think it's the former. It's a good guy who, because of conditions, both political and I think global conditions, has to do things that are morally unacceptable, and yet he tries to sort of maneuver the best course possible. Now tell me about sort of what a plot would be in one of these narcodramas. You can pick one or you can just tell me a generic plot. Um, Again, as a melodramatic structure, they tend to be very similar. And they they have very, they're sort of variations on a theme. Um, The first one that comes to mind is one in which, once again, you have this honorable police officer and... Everybody around him is Im- involved with the cartel, but he doesn't know. So he's always trying to like get these bad guys and thugs into prison, and nobody's helping, and they always get away, and he doesn't understand why. And because he's so involved in his police job and so getting such negative reaction, his wife feels left out. So his wife ends up having a love affair with the leader of the drug cartel. <laughs> And she doesn't know this, but she's being played and used against him. So finally, they take her and her son hostage, and he somehow has to sort of resolve the situation, which he actually 
does, right? And I guess that's less of a bad guy person, but once again, he ends up killing the guy and sort of using non-official ways to get justice. And and I think that's the main theme of narcodramas, right? That somehow you have to come out of the official or legal ways to get what is ultimately good or what you think is good. So when everything else fails you, you resort to the manly code of honor. Absolutely. And it's very much, I think, as I, I think it, it, there's also a tradition there with sort of Chuck Norris and 1970s U.S. action films, right, of taking the law into your own hands. Now, there has been in like the last five or six years sort of a like a, a renaissance of these sort of arty Mexican directors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What is the relationship of these narco-dramas to that? None. <laughs> uh, in some ways, the narco-drama industry is treated like sort of the porn industry. It's sort of this second class. And it's fascinating, I guess, because Mexican film was really, really high, most probably until the 50s. And it was sort of internationally well-known in Cannes, festivals, all these kinds of things. And then it's always talked about of sort of going into a lull or there being a period where actually nothing good was done. And then in the 80s and the 90s, really, with all these films like Amores Perros, Y Tu Mamá También, El... Was El Crimen del Padre Amado, right? All these films, right? And, and now being nominated for Oscars, right? Which, which are great. But what's interesting is that sort of this 30-year period is overlooked when an enormous amount of number of films were actually done. And it was also the first time that you would almost say that typical people got portrayed in films, that it was no longer sort of these beautiful actors and actresses or these musicals. It was actually, you know, people that you could sort of see in the street, at least in this region. And so that was what was fascinating to me, that once the film gets in some ways democratized, is what I say, like it becomes democratic, then it's no good. (laughs) Then it's no longer acceptable, you know. So I I think that that's a real element of it, uh, that there's there's a real division. And yet there's something that's Mexico- that's very essential to Mexico, that it's producing these two different types of films. Both telenovelas and these narco-dramas are sort of really explicitly not considered art. Why is that Why is that important? It's an interesting question. I've always thought about it in the sense that because it's not sort of legitimate, legitimate art, it actually has a greater audience that there's something about it being too accessible, right? Or what I was saying about it being too democratic that actually makes it problematic because good art, true art, should be only for a handful, should only be for the elite. But what you see over and over again is in both genres. I mean, you have people that have dedicated their lives to each of these genres. And and I think to me it was a very touching moment when finally Vargas Llosa, Mario Vargas Llosa, interviewed Corín Tellado and said, you know, that here he's a he's a famous writer who's been nominated for, you know, a Nobel, and yet he's recognizing that the work this woman has done writing screenplays for telenovela for 40 years is true art, that it is an artistic contribution. And I also saw in, um, in something by you that I read that uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez had said that he wanted to write a telenovela because then people would really read his stuff. And it's complicated. I was thinking about that because specifically from his comment of him saying that 
more people read or see telenovelas than they've ever read A Hundred Years of Solitude. But I think one of the problems in Latin America has to do that we have an incredibly, I think, gifted artistic production, but particularly literature. I think we have amazing writers, but those writers are equally or even more read outside of Latin America than in Latin America. And most of these writers have also lived in exile, which I think is also an essential element of Latin American literature. So that in many ways, I think that there's a, a, a real tragedy or a real sadness among Latin American writers that they feel they're not writing for their own people or they're not writing for this generation. Carlos Fuentes, another Mexican writer, used to say that he's committed to writing because he would hope that later generations would get to read him. Now, I will ask you one final question that I think is on everybody's minds. Explain to me the Ugly Betty phenomenon. Yeah, I I actually like it a lot. And I was looking at it, and I've, I've heard a lot of Latino friends and colleagues of mine sort of complain because it's really not the same as the soap opera. But I think that's where it's actually beautiful. What was the soap opera? Uh, Betty La Fea, which was the original Colombian soap opera, which had the similar theme of a assistant to this sort of corporate fashion boss who did sort of all the work but would not get any attention because she was so ugly. So it's it's really sort of the ugly duckling story. And then sort of she gets mentored by a big top female corporate and she... Um, she comes back and sort of, you know, now is sort of the big head and also beautiful at the same time, right? So I guess what I think is powerful about um, Ugly Betty is one thing is that I think they're creating a new genre. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but that it's not a sitcom, but it's not a soap opera either. So it has like a sitcom structure, but it has sort of this soap opera-ish kind of elements. And I also think they've been very, very smart in getting great actors. So between America Ferrara and Vanessa Williams and Salma Hayek, I think you have real talent there. And I think that, and, and they really know how to work it. So, and this is happening a lot, right? That now you have production studios in the U.S. trying to produce Spanish soap operas or English versions of them to an enormous amount of Latinos in the U.S., right, to the Latino community. I remember when I first heard of Ugly Betty when I was um, in Mexico years ago, I was I had the same reaction that you had to Chica, where I was like, that's repulsive. What I mean, and I saw I saw the opening credits, and I'm thinking, this is, what is, this is awful. You know, it's so misogynistic. But yet, of course, you know, it turns out it's not quite as bad as I had thought. But um, why, though, I mean, Ugly Betty seems like it's just, begging for misinterpretation. <laughs> Why is this the thing that has become the sweeping social phenomenon that it has become? Um, I think that's a good question because I had the same reaction. I When I saw that, I was like, oh, here we go again. You can't even have an original idea. You know, it's like you're already stealing the genre. Now you're even stealing the story. What else are you going to do, right? But I'm not sure I can sort of define what about it is so popular other than I think that they're stealing, they're really sticking to very traditional tropes like sort of like the white man in the sort of highest desirous position, right? Um, sort of these racial stereotypes of the family and sort of 
that there's sort of this very loving, tender Latin family, which, you know, any family is really hard for them to be, right? But I think that they're actually sticking to those stereotypes in a way that actually is true to the genre and people sort of knowing, taking, taking them at face value. And maybe that's what they're reinterpreting. But, but I think it would be really interesting to do some research on it. I'm interested in seeing what happens to Betty over the... <laughs> and how it happens. You see, that's, that's the other thing that I think I find fascinating because you sort of know that she'll sort of succeed and you, but it's kind of intriguing to see how it will happen. Well, but yeah, then is it going to be like, you know, when Sam and Diane finally kissed on Cheers, you know, is it going to not be interesting anymore once she's not ugly Betty? I'm pretty sure. And, that, and that's also the next question, right? How are they going to deal with that specific limitation of the genre? Because in Latin America, you know that's what's going to happen. And that's going to mean the end of the soap opera. Or you'll try to get like a, another soap opera, which happened with Betty La Fea, but it just won't have the same appeal. Well, I, I think that's pretty much all we need to know. Um, Hugo Benavides, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. That was Hugo Benavides. He's an assistant professor of anthropology at Fordham University. Shall we move on to dinner? Actually, Wilhelmina, I think you have more pressing business. May we see you for a moment? Bradford? It's about the last issue shoot in Rio. Uh, was there a problem? I don't mind paying for props and extras. But I take great exception to financing your Brazilian butt lift. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. We are now podcasting the show. If you want more information, go to our website, wfuv.org, and click on podcasts right on the homepage. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.